listening to the Retro Sermons Podcast. Find out more at NorthColumbusChristians.com slash Retro Sermons. In fact, it has been overemphasized to the point that it covers a multitude of sins. Not that we would have and would in any sense minimize the importance of tolerance in religion or seek to destroy its influence. Live and let live is a slogan that needs to be spoken much and practiced more. Bigotry and intolerance have done much to turn away the faith of many. The word of God teaches tolerance, and it condemns intolerance. However, in teaching against intolerance in religion, it is so easy to swing to an extreme and urge this principle where it does not apply. In what realm does tolerance apply? Now let us look at this principle and see if we can find from the word of God where it applies and where it doesn't apply. In Matthew, the seventh chapter, verse one, Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged. And again, the apostle Paul in writing to the saints at Rome says something along this matter line of judging the other fellow and his motives and the thoughts and intents of his heart. In the 14th chapter, the fourth verse, who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth afore him. Now man cannot look into the heart of his fellow man and tell what his thoughts and the intents of his heart are. He cannot read the motives that are found therein. So in this matter we have to be very tolerant one toward another. And also in the matters of judging the overt act of others, we need to be tolerant. For Jesus says in the Matthew, the seventh chapter, verses three through five, And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, and considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast the mote out of thy brother's eye. So even when we see the act that is performed by a man, though it may be a mistake, it may be a sin, we need to practice a great deal of tolerance in our judgment of that matter. You know, it's so easy to make a mistake to be tolerant with ourselves because we know the circumstances surrounding that mistake. We know the temptation that was involved. Well, with the other fellow, it's a different thing. We ought to be rather stern in our judgment of ourselves and more tolerant in our judgment of others. James tells us in James the second chapter, verses 12 and 13, that he that judges without mercy shall be judged without mercy. And certainly the intolerant man will reap intolerance. Now, in matters of private opinion, we are to be tolerant. We are to forbear one with another. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the church at Philippi, had something to say to the Philippians along this line of being tolerant one with another. In Philippians, the second chapter, verses three and four, he said, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look every man on his own thing. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Certainly Paul here was teaching tolerance, one toward another. 
to esteem one another better than sin. Now, in what realm is tolerance not to be applied? Now, this may come as a shock to you that there is a place in which there should not be tolerance. Somebody might say, now, what, you, a gospel preacher, say such a thing? I think when we study a little further, you will agree with this. I can only be liberal with things that belong to me. Now, I have raised a couple of children, and I own, have owned several cars. If when my children were small, if I had wanted to let them play in my car, and even tear up the upholstery or whatever they might want to do, well, that would be my business, because that was my property and my children. It might not have been wise, but certainly no one could prosecute me for it. But on the other hand, you have a car. And if I had small children today and I was to give them the liberty to go into your car and to destroy it, well, then I would not have that right. That is certainly a place where my children or myself could not practice indulgence. It just wouldn't be my liberty to grant them that privilege. In other words, we can't not, cannot be liberal with the other fellow's property. Now, when we come to the word of God, it belongs to God and not to man. And it belonging to God, the creator of heaven and earth, the one with whom we have to do. We do not have the privilege of being liberal with it or to change it in any way, shape, or form. And we cannot be tolerant with those who would twist the scriptures, who would deny what God says, and who would charge God with saying something that he doesn't say. Now let us notice a few things that are being taught. And you be honest about this matter and see whether or not we can afford to practice tolerance in these things. There are those today that say that there are many ways to heaven. That we are all working to go the same way. Jesus said, I am the way. Just one, singular. Not plural, but singular. And so if somebody preaches that there are many ways, then they are denying what Jesus said and teaching something that he did not teach. And certainly we cannot be tolerant with that kind of a thing. Now, there are those who teach that faith only is a very wholesome doctrine and very full of comfort. Now, this may be comforting to the son, but it's certainly not wholesome, and we cannot agree with it. Neither can we afford to be tolerant with it. For in James, the second chapter, beginning with verse 14 and going through the 26th, James is striving there to impress upon Christians that the faith that saves is a faith that works, that a faith that does not work is a dead faith, and that men are justified by works, that is, by works of faith, and not by faith only, a dead faith. And certainly we cannot be tolerant through with that idea. For Paul teaches in Galatians 5 and 6, that it is a uh, faith that worketh through love is the thing that avails. And anything less than that will not avail. It's a faith that works, that works through love. This is a thing that saves. Now there are those who teach that one church is as good as another. But what does the Bible teach? Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church. Now, I am sure that the church that Jesus built 
is better than any church or all the churches that men have built. The Apostle Paul in writing to the church at Ephesus says, there is one body, Ephesians 4 and 4. In the two last verses of the first chapter, he tells us what the body is. He says there that the body is the church. So the body being the church, or the church being the body, then when he says there is one church, one body, it means that there is one church. And when the Bible clearly sets forth that, then we cannot be tolerant with the idea that one is as good as another. In the fifth chapter of Ephesians in verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the, of the body. Now notice what he says, that Christ is the head of the church, not churches, but the church. And we want to stick to what God has said. There are those that teach that there are many baptisms. There are those that teach us sprinkling and pouring as baptism. Now, if we are true to God's word, we cannot be tolerant with that kind of a doctrine. Because the Bible clearly tells us in Romans 6, chapter, and verse 4, also in Colossians 2 and 12, that baptism is a burial. And certainly it is portrayed to us in Acts 8, chapter, verses 36 through 39, that baptism is a burial. He also tells us in Romans 6 that we are planted together with Christ in baptism. Then there are those who tell us that baptism is not essential. But when the people on the day of Pentecost asked, saying, what must we do to be, what must we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And we are taught in 1 Peter 3 and 21 that baptism saves us. And so if we're going to be true to the teaching of God's word, we cannot tolerate the opinions of men when they contradict the word of God on the subject of baptism or anything else. Neither can we fellowship error. There are those that would have us to pat on the back and receive and to fellowship every one, no matter what he might teach. But the Bible condemns such an idea. Why, Jude tells us to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And in Ephesians 4 and 5, he says, There is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. And since there is but one faith, if we are to be true to God, then we must stand upon what God's word says. Now, there are some things in which we have to be careful lest we become intolerant. Now, we cannot afford to, um, to force our opinions upon other people. That would be intolerant. We cannot afford to do that. We cannot afford to be intolerant in the matter of trying to set ourselves up as an authority above and beyond the word of God that to force our opinions upon the other fellow. We cannot claim that we have the powers of interpretation above our brethren. If we do that, we will be guilty of the sin, not only of intolerance, but of presumption. The sin of which David prayed to be saved from in Psalms, the 19th chapter, verses 13 and 14. Now, let me say this. We are not intolerant when we contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, Jude 3. We are not intolerant when we teach the word of God in season and out of season, 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5. 
We are not intolerant when we fight against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Ephesians 6 and 12. We are not intolerant when we refuse to fellowship with those who persist, who persist in teaching religious errors that would destroy man eternally. 2 John 9 through 11. We are not intolerant when we use all our strength to resist error with truth. We can do no more or no less and be pleasing to God. I bid you to think upon these things and to tune in again tomorrow at this time and we return you now to your announcement. Thank you, and good afternoon to you, the radio audience. This afternoon, we want to discuss this subject. Do we need a living voice? In Hebrews, the first chapter, verses 1 and 2, we have this language. God, who is sundry times and in divers manners, spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. Now, God has spoken to us by his Son. Is it possible for us to understand what he's saying? The impression has been given that we cannot understand the Bible. And this has confused many. There are so many people who teach that we cannot understand the Bible unless we have an inspired teacher. Now, we need to consider this subject this morning and this afternoon both by reason and from revelation. Where does divine inspiration lie? How should we regard the Holy Scriptures? Are we to give way to that idea that there has to be a living voice to interpret the Bible for us? Now here we have the idea advanced, and I'm quoting to you from the book, A Catechism for Inquirers, page 3 of the introduction. How should we regard the Holy Scriptures? They are the sacred words of God, inspired by God, but needing a living teacher to explain their meaning and to keep us from error in interpreting them. End of quotation. The vital issue is before us. Can we, the common people, take the Bible and read it and understand it and learn what the will of the Lord is? Or does there have to be an inspired teacher a living voice of the church to tell us what the scripture means. Is the word inspired or is the teacher inspired? This is a parting of the ways between sectism and Christianity. We all agree that the writers of the original message were inspired. We read this from God's word. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Second Peter 1, verses, verse 21. Now he plainly tells us therein, we all agree, that the word of God came as the Spirit of God moved those prophets of olden time. 
But the question is involved is, do we have to have an inspired teacher to tell us what these words that inspired men in the long ago taught? Now let us turn to Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus and see if we can learn anything that will throw some light upon this subject from that reading. In the third chapter, beginning with verse 1, Paul says, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof, or, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Now what does Paul say here? Paul says that he wrote to them for a certain purpose, and what is that? Whereby when ye read, as I wrote in a few words, whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge of the mystery of Christ. Now Paul didn't say anything about an inspired teacher being at Ephesus who would interpret his message for them. But I wrote, whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Now if the people of Paul's day could understand what Paul wrote, then why cannot the people of this day understand? They didn't have to have an inspired teacher to tell them what Paul meant when he wrote. So why should we? And as we continue this study, the question before us is not concerning the coming of the word. It has to do with the understanding of the message. Can we understand it without an inspired teacher? Jesus was very careful about sending out his apostles in the world to preach. He told them to tarry in the city of Jerusalem until they would be endued with power from on high. He also told them in the 16th chapter of John in verse 13, this, Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show it unto you. John 16 and 13. Uh, now, if it took an inspired teacher, if it takes an inspired teacher to tell us what the inspired teachers of the first century taught, what they wrote, will it not also take an inspired teacher today to tell us what an inspired teacher is saying? If not, why not? Why don't the inspired teachers of today just repeat the message that was given nearly 2,000 years ago? If they would do this, then they would be proclaiming the same message the apostles proclaimed. Jesus told them to go into all the world and to preach the gospel to every creature. And neither did he say anything about taking an inspired teacher along to explain your inspired message to the people. But if the inspired teachers of today were just to repeat the message that was given by those inspired teachers of 2,000 years ago, would that be sufficient? It ought to. That message was sufficient in the long ago. Why wouldn't it be today? And if this was done, there would be no need of a Bible today. 
The Bible was given to us that we might study it and learn what they wrote concerning the will of God. A living inspired teacher would not help because if we had a living inspired teacher and the things that they are teaching concerning the inspired message it was given, we would have to have another inspired teacher to tell us what that inspired teacher taught. In fact, we would all have to be inspired in order to understand what the inspired teacher was telling us. And our salvation would depend upon our being inspired. If not, why not? Friends, infallibility lies in the word of God and not in the men who profess to teach it. Is the Bible alone a sufficient guide? This question cannot be settled on the basis of opinion. But when we come to what the Bible says about the matter, it is easily settled. We need to consider what Jesus said. The thing that Jesus said in the night in which he was betrayed, just before his departing from his disciples, he gave them this instruction concerning his word. And this is found in the 12th chapter of John, verses 47 and 48. And if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken the same shall judge him in the last day. Now here we see that Jesus says that the word that he spoke, the same shall judge men in the last days. The last inspired writer said that all the dead would one day stand before God and be judged out of the things written in the books. Revelation 20 and verse 12. Now if the People who are to stand before God in the judgment are to be judged by the word that Christ spoke and by the things that are in the books. Then surely this Bible is sufficient. It is that by which we will be judged. There is no new revelation to be given. It has all been given. And we are to be judged by it. And certainly, if we are to be judged by something, that God gave us the intelligence. And he also made the book plain enough for us to live by it. That we might practice the things that they're in. Or we are going to be judged by them in the last day. Paul's instruction to the elders of the church at Ephesus shows how that man can understand the word of God. We need to turn to the 20th chapter of the book of Acts and there read the instructions that he gave to those people when they met him at Miletus. This is found in the 32nd verse of that chapter. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the words of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. Now, he says this word is able to build them up and to give them an inheritance among all those that were sanctified. The Apostle Peter says in Second Peter, the first chapter, verses 1 and 3, that God had given them all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Certainly this is true, and we do not need anything else. We have this statement made by the Apostle Paul to Timothy. But continue you, continue you in the things which you have learned and have been assured of, knowing of whom you have learned them, and that from a child you have known the Holy Scriptures, 
which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Second Timothy, the third chapter, verses 14 through 17. For so short a statement, this contains an amazing number of facts. The child of God is to continue in the Holy Scriptures in complete confidence as to their truthfulness. They will make him wise enough to be saved. They are inspired of God. They will furnish him what he teaches. They will point out all error. They will show him how to correct every mistake. They will teach him how to remain righteous. They will make him complete as a man of God. They will entirely direct him in the performance of all good work. What a marvelous guidebook. While following the word of God, the Christian does not lack a single thing that he needs. And we ask those of you who might claim that there is a continued inspiration. What new revelations have been revealed? What new things do we know about God or Christ or about sin? Are the blessings that are in Christ Jesus is not revealed in the Bible, in the message it was proclaimed in the long ago. Where should our faith reside? Our faith must be in the word of God. No man on earth has any miraculous power to interpret the scriptures. The Bible repeatedly warns us against teachers who pervert and misteach the scriptures. How could we be on our guard against false teachers if the scriptures could not be definitely understood by all alike? How could we try the spirits to see if they be of God? 1 John 4 and 1. If we could not know for sure what the message means, how could we be aware of, beware of false prophets who come to us in sheep's clothing? Matthew 7, 15. If we had no sure way of judging between what is false and what is true. How could we refuse to bid God speak to those who come with another gospel? Second John verses 9 through 11. If we could not know what the gospel is. There is no living voice to explain the meaning of God's message. God's message is living and active. And it is God's power unto salvation. Let us read it to know his will. Let us obey it to be well pleasing unto him. And heaven shall be our home. We return you now to your station announcement and invite you to be with us next Monday at this time.